From understanding the news of today to explaining principles which will last a lifetime, you're listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, equipping pastors and church leaders across rural America and beyond to meet the challenges of ministry while advancing the kingdom of God in your local community and in our world. I am here with pastors Mel Massingale and Todd Stanley. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Whatever time you're listening to this. Hello there. All right. So we're going to talk about three roles of pastoral leadership. Uh, There's much more than three, but we're going to focus on these three if we get through all three of them. The first one uh, will be pastors as as a leader of leaders. And I think Mel in particular with, I've I've said this multiple times about Summit Church before, um, there are several pastors who work for you who are have the capacity and the personality to be senior leaders themselves. 100%. And so I want to know what it's like to lead people like that. How do you lead people like that? Should pastors of churches who listen to the Back 40 shy away from onboarding people with that temperament and that skill set? Uh, or should they embrace it? How should they embrace it? How do they do it? Um. So I heard, uh, and I've talked to you about this before, Michael, but I heard Bill Belichick say one time, whether you like him or hate him, um, I heard him say one time that he only wants to hire ass- assistant coaches who want to be head coaches because they think differently than assistant coaches do. And so, and I think there's a lot to that, that um, that I, I, I'm i not threatened. I don't feel weird about people saying, hey, I think I want to go pastor someday. It's like, great. Like, let's invest in you. Let's help you get there. Uh, because they do think differently than somebody who just says, yeah, I'm good with being an associate pastor. And there's nothing wrong with either one of those things, but their mindset is different sometimes. Um, In my observation, sometimes pastors are threatened by people who have uh, giftings, uh, if they're good preachers, good communicators, if they're charismatic, if people are attracted to them. Sometimes pastors reject them because they feel threatened. Um, but man, you might be rejecting a great gift to your congregation and a great gift to you. And so, so you, you're a hundred percent right. I, um, I mean, gosh, we've got, uh, we've got several staff that I would feel totally comfortable if they came to me and said, I want to go plant a church saying, yep, you're ready to do that. You could pull that off. Um, and they've got the giftings to do it. So one of the things we've done though is, um, um, and I was talking, I've talked to Todd about this, like, I want to create an environment where people feel comfortable and want to be, but I don't want to create an environment that's so comfortable that people don't pursue what they're supposed to be doing. You know, that people right. go, hey, I like this so much. I feel like I'm supposed to be doing that, but this is really good, so I'm going to stick around here. Um, but I, the challenge is how do you get them there in the first place? And so for us, you know, when Todd came to us in 2014, it was like, Hey, I can promise you a pay cut, and <laughs> and that was it, right? Like, leave the bigger church you're at, come to us. And it was like we cast vision. I invited him into something. I didn't promise him here's what it's going to look like, but I said here's what I believe God wants to do. And if you want to be a part of something like this, then come on. And Todd is one of the examples. Like Todd could go pastor. He'd do a great job as a senior pastor somewhere. Um, but he was willing to lay that down to say, hey, I want to be a part of this. And so that's something that lead pastors have to be able to do. You have to be able to cast a compelling enough vision that people will say, Hey, I will lay down some of what I think I want in order to be a part of that. Yeah. And that's, that's challenging because you can't just make that stuff up. You can't Mm -hmm. just be like, Hey, I believe we're going to do, you know what I mean? There's got to be a conviction behind it that says, this is what God's speaking to us to do. Yeah. Todd, what did that process look like for you? Like how, how did you, how did you go about being willing and eager to work in that environment? Like knowing you could, you could be an effective senior leader. Like, what did that look like for you? How did you walk through that? Um, man, I mean, I think the biggest thing for, for me and for my wife, as we were considering and going through that whole process was just what do we feel like God's calling us to, you know, it's one thing for me to, to say, yes, I've got the capacity to go and, and be a senior leader. Um, it's another thing, though, for me to say, is that what God is calling me to in this season? And so for us, it was that was a big part of the conversation is like, is this where God is calling us? Uh, I never want to be a person who pursues a title. I want to be a person who pursues God and who pursues um, 
well, just a, a place and an environment in which I feel like that my gifts can be utilized and I can be of benefit. Uh, and the more I talked with Mel and with the elders and the, you know, when we visited, it just felt like, okay, this is a place that we're going to be able to really sink our teeth in and, and, and be a part of something that, that's unique and in, a, and a place where God is really moving and a place where our gifts can be used. And so that, that was the, the big part for me. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know if there's more. Yeah, to say no, there. that's good. Mel, um, I, I think you had a, a pretty good point when you said that some pastors may be a little bit insecure about bringing mm-hmm. people like this into their organization, let alone platforming them. Yeah. Um, and I want to know what has the effect been for you in the way the congregation views you when you've platformed other talented uh, people who could be senior leaders? How, how has that changed the way the congregation views you? Well, it gives me credibility. Um, whether it's a guest speaker that I bring in or whether it's one of our team that just does well, what, and not even on the platform, if they're doing, if they're performing well in their job and people see that it adds credibility to me. Cause they're like, man, if these people want to follow Mel, maybe Mel's a decent leader, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or if man, if Mel is associated with this speaker that he brought in, um, maybe that says something about who Mel is, you know, if they're friends. Oh my gosh. Right. And so again, sometimes our insecurity gets the best of us and we go, now I have to be the best preacher and I don't want to bring somebody else in because if they're better, what if I lose? And it's like, no, you're not going to lose. Um, cause your people don't love you because you're the best communicator. They love you because of what you invest into them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, I think it is a, it is a no lose situation. Now we've all heard stories of like, oh, there's a church split, or oh, this leader ran off with you know with some of my people, or whatever it is, and that's possible. But um, you know, that's the relationships, right? That's a risk. Every relationship is a risk to some degree or another, and so there is risk involved in that. But I just think the risk of not raising people up is so much worse than the risk of what happens if you do. Yeah. So it's better to assume that adding more talent will function like a rising tide that lifts all boats 100%. than it is to assume that adding more talent will create an ocean that's going to drown me as a leader. A hundred percent. Yeah, for sure. So both of you do work in leading leaders in the community. Todd, you do spiritual formation. So mm-hmm. that requires a lot of, um, you know, interacting with people who are high capacity leaders outside in the community. Mel, you do leadership night. Um, what is it like to lead leaders of big companies? So I, I do believe that, um, there are leaders from some rather large, well, large for mm-hmm. Indiana companies who yeah. both attend a church and interact in, in that leadership domain with you guys. So what is that like to work with people who are the boss where they're at? Like, do you have to approach that differently or is it more of a, like, do you, do you look at them as equals or do you try to assume uh, spiritual authority over, over them in that particular moment? I mean, I, I try to approach everybody as an equal, you know, um, and recognize that, look, there's something of value that they bring to the table as well. If I go to the table, assuming I know more than them or that I'm here to, to give you the answers, you know, then, uh, number one, they're going to, they're going to recognize that and they're going to close themselves off to me in the first place. Like this guy thinks he's better than me. Mm -hmm. I don't want to listen to him. Uh, and then the second thing is I might miss out on something incredible that they bring to the table because I've, you know, I have this, I'm thinking more highly of myself than I ought to, to mm-hmm. borrow from the apostle Paul. And so I try to approach everybody as an equal, no matter what. Uh, and then my hope is, man, if I can just bring one thing to them that's helpful, then I've done my job. You know, I don't have to have every answer. I don't have to wow them with, you know, all the things that I know. If I can give them one thing that's helpful, then then that's then I've done something worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Have you? Okay. Well, I was just gonna say, um, you know, we've got some people in our church that are high capacity leaders in different areas and realms in the world, and um, one of the conversations I'm, I'm conscientious about having with some of them. Um, especially those that have a little more notoriety or maybe they're more recognized is I will tell them like, Hey, I'm never going to ask anything of you that I wouldn't ask of anybody else in our church. Like 
this, you get asked for a lot of stuff in the world. I'm not going to ask you for anything that everybody in our church gets asked for. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Because I want them to know, Hey, this is, this is a two way street. Like Todd was saying, we, this is not about what can I get from you? This is about, Hey, we want to serve you, but we're going to ask you to be serving here too. Like there's something, there's a, you know, it's, it's not quid pro quo, but there is a give and take here, um, that we're walking together. We're serving each other. Um, and that, I think that's important. Um, it's important not to be intimidated when somebody walks in and go, oh my gosh, it's the mayor. The mayor's in church today. Oh my right, gosh. Right. Like we're going to treat them, roll out the red carpet for them. Well, no, if they demand that or if they feel like they need that, then you probably don't want them in your church because yeah, that's going to yeah. lead to other problems. Um, but if you treat them with respect, but you treat them as an equal and as a peer, I think it just, it, it bears good fruit. Yeah, I think that's wise. And I think that the it speaks well of both the church of summit and also of the leaders of high capacity, high capacity leaders of other organizations who attend to summit that mm-hmm. like I've been here for two or three years and I can't p- point them out. Yeah. Like I would, cause I haven't met them, yeah. but just by looking on a Sunday morning, I wouldn't be able to say, Oh, th- th- there's, there he is, or mm-hmm. there she is. Um, and so we like, seat them in our VIP section up front. That's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's where we put them. It, it's roped off <laughs> lazy boys. And, uh, just yeah. Justin Bieber was there this weekend. Uh, it was crazy. <laughs> um, so yeah, so, there is a there's some value in some, <laughs> oh, never mind never mind there is some value or a lot of value in uh when you go to as a pastor when you go to meet someone like this in your community who might be interested in joining your church to watch to see whether or not they lord that over you yeah. or over other people 100 and not take the bait of okay well i really want this organization to be tied to my church yeah but there's this, you know, well, that comes back to security again, though. Like, is this my church or is this God's church? Uh, you know, am I stewarding this? Cause if this is God's church, I don't need, I don't need this, but if it's my church, I need it. Like, yeah, right. Yeah, if it depends yeah. on me and my ability and my coolness, and my whatever, then we start to bend to that stuff. And it's like, I don't care who they are. If they're, if they're notable or have money, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to enter into any relationship that's going to cause me to steward God's church differently than I should. Yeah. Yeah. For notoriety or money or any of those kind of things. Cause right. Yeah. yeah, that's good. So speaking of dealing with leaders in the community, I think one of the roles of a pastoral leader is to function as a mouthpiece to the community. Uh, maybe not on all issues, but certainly on some issues. And so first of all, maybe let's talk about what those issues should be. Uh, and what those issues shouldn't be like, mm-hmm. where do you tend to try to get your voice out in the community in a leadership capacity? Like what issues are you talking about when you do that? And what issues in the community do you see or read about where you're like, uh, I'm probably not going to go near that. Do you have a way of sorting those out? I think we can and should address anything that is a gospel issue. And what I mean by that is, like if it is, uh, if it runs contrary to the gospel, to the mora- to the morality of Scripture, to um, yeah. So if it runs contrary to those things, we should speak into that. Uh, I think that we have to be very careful about how we speak, though. I think it's more that than than whether we speak or not. How we speak is much more important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we want to speak the truth, but we want to do it in love. That, that is the, you know, that's the mandate of Scripture. That's what we're called to do. And so I think we have to be uh, cognizant of how we're speaking. But I think that Scripture addresses all kinds of things, like every aspect of life is touched on by Scripture. And so we shouldn't shy away from any of those as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, a filter I use in, uh, and and um, – I'm happy for you guys to push back on this, but when I read what Paul writes to the churches, it looks like Paul largely ignores what's going on in culture until it is directly impacting what's going on in the church. Yeah. Um, And it's not that I don't think Paul was afraid to address things as much as he had a singular focus on the health of the local body. And, um, And so for me, that's one of the filters I use. Because I'll say, um, hey, who, how does this impact what's going on in our church? And are these issues that are, um, that are impacting the people that are 
attending on the weekend that are, you know, because if it is, then yes, we definitely need to address this. But what we want to be careful about doing is using uh, the platform that we have um, and leveraging that for my personal opinions about lots of different things. And that's where it can get kind of dangerous. And that's where we got to be careful. And I've had some conversations with some friends that I've just said, Hey, we got to be careful about like, is this a biblical issue or is this a, a, an issue that's dear to your heart? And it's not, um, it's not a bad issue, but it maybe is not gospel centric. And, um, and that's where for everybody, it's going to be a little different. And for us, um, even like the series we're going to be in in the month of September, we're going to address some things that we haven't really addressed before but because it's started to seep into the thinking of our church to some degree. Yeah. It's like, okay, we need to address this now. Yeah. Um, and so I, I don't hide from any issue at all, but there's some issues like my, the church is never going to know. I'm never going to be overt about who I voted for in a, in a, an election. Um, uh, even for that matter, I'm never going to put a political candidate sign in my yard because I don't want my support for a particular candidate to jeopardize my ability to share the gospel with somebody. Right, right. And so that to me is is first and foremost. Um, and we've had political candidates in our church that I love that I've told them, I'm voting for you. I'm just not putting your sign in my yard because I've got bigger things that I'm worried about. And they're, they're eternal issues. Um, so the people that are like, hey, we're going to talk about critical race theory from stage. I'm okay with that as long as it's an issue that is being felt in their congregation, yeah. not just on the nightly news. Right. So does does this filter then require that you keep your finger on the pulse of like the cultural zeitgeist, or is it, or does it require? Can you can you not be into current events and just focus entirely on the congregation and pick up the issues? Does your radar work well enough if you're just saying, okay, I'm going to tune that out and I'm going to focus on the people who attend this church and I'm going to, I'm going to see if these issues pop up here. Like, do you think it requires both? Like, do you need to uh, pay attention to the culture and to the congregation or is it, or will you see the cultural issues eventually make their way in and then notice them and then be prepared to deal with them? So when I say not pay attention to cultural issues, I don't mean stop reading about yeah, things. Like, yeah, like yeah. stop stop trying to study and understand. Like I think that one of the dangers here is um, if we say, okay, there's this list of issues that are that I'm going to pay attention to and this list of issues that I'm not going to pay attention to because then you abandon that filter that you're talking about mm -hmm. because then it's no longer about what's impacting the congregation. It's about a set number of issues. Yeah. And so we kind of have to try to pay attention to as many things as possible, mm -hmm. um, but be judicious about what things you're going to speak to and then you use that filter and how do you delineate? Yeah, I think total immersion in either one of those things. Like if I just immerse myself in current events and politics and news and things like that, that can be detrimental. Um, and if I just totally immerse myself just in my congregation and disregard what's going on in the world, that can be detrimental. So yeah, I think you've got to kind of know what's going on in the world, but be mature enough not to get sucked into that like vortex that it can. Cause you know, there's always something on your news feed or in Twitter yeah. and everywhere. Right. Um, and so I think we got to be careful about that. So yeah, we can't abandon what's going on in the world, but man, we got to be real careful not to let that dominate our thinking too. Yeah. yeah. So you raised an, an interesting point. We were talking the other day about, um, so the question I had was, um, there's this picture, this old photograph from Russia in the 1920s and yep. uh, you know, I'm not going to show it on the podcast or anything. You can look it up. It's pretty famous. The, the picture is of uh, Soviet peasants who are selling human body parts for other people to consume as food. Mm -hmm. The question I had was, how do you end up in that picture? Like, is it just a, is it inflection point after inflection point of bad decisions that cause you to end up in that picture? And the people who are in the picture, do you think that if they knew that was where they were going, they would have turned around and did something else? Like they don't want to end up there. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the, anyway, the, the, the place we arrived at, and I'm, I hope you can unpack this for people because so right now people, they see things uh, shifting and things, mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe not, there's a lot of anxiety provoking things happening culturally yeah. and in the news. And we've talked a little bit about that. I think that the natural response for people is to try to control the actions of other people when they see that. It's like, okay, I have to stop them from doing this so I don't end up here. Mm -hmm. um, but, but the thing that you said that interested me 
was that the people in the picture probably made a lot of bad moral decisions with how they conducted themselves and that's how they ended up in the in that Mm -hmm. photograph uh and then at that point i had said well so maybe it's the case that all the good christians were dead by that point yeah and that's like a a morbid thought but it's like look at the if you think that's morbid look at the picture because it's not as morbid as in my estimation as Mm -hmm. what those people were experiencing and so what would you say to people in terms of okay they're afraid they're, they're they're scared like they're trying to have faith but they see things maybe not going in a favorable direction for the church or for themselves um in their their initial response is okay i have to control other people mm-hmm. why is it better to take your own individual decisions into account and how can that actually have more of an effect on the outcome for yourself essentially hmm um, the, the thing that comes to mind, uh, immediately for me is Psalm thirty-seven twenty-five, where David said, I was young and now I am old, yet I have mm-hmm. never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. We have to remember the sufficiency of God in these moments. When I forget the sufficiency of God, whether it's in small things or I'm selling body parts on the side of the road, to, you, there, I have, I mean... Whenever I forget that God is sufficient, I will always make a compromise. Mm -hmm. And that compromise will lead to the next compromise, which will lead to the next compromise, which will lead to the next compromise. And and all of us have experienced that in our lives at some some level or another. And it's because we forget that God is enough. Mm And whether it's in terms of our leadership, whether it's in terms of the conversations that we're having with other people, whether it's in, you know, the decisions that we're making in regard to our families, but that God is enough. Mm-hmm. And it's when we forget that, that other things become idols, that other things become gods for us. And we start to pursue those and we start to compromise, you know, who we are and come into agreement with, uh, you know, with, with spirits and ideas that are contrary to God. Mm-hmm. And, and then we find ourselves, you know, metaphorically right selling body parts on the side of the road yeah um because we have forgotten what god has done for us mm-hmm. yeah that's i mean that's that's a good sermon right there <laughs> you, you should unpack that but um but you know the example you gave it's true in every aspect of our lives so like as pastors we think about a moral failure and we think about it like oh it's either money or women right um but okay, how many pastors are struggling with pornography right now? But even that, even the desire to go, okay, there is something I need that that this will satisfy. Like we've forgotten the sufficiency of God. Like God can satisfy every one of our needs, right? Like there's something in my heart that needs something, and I think this will do it. Um, the the pastor that goes, man, I'm underpaid. It won't it won't hurt if I skim a little bit. It won't hurt if I use the church to pay for this. Um, but what's he saying? Well, I have a need and God is not fulfilling that need. And so I deserve. And so it's little compromises, you know, the little things that we go, Oh, that it's a hundred percent. Like, is God going to take care of me or not? Um, and we preach about this stuff all the time, but do we really, really, really believe it? Um, and you know, there, there is a, there is an element of, um, personal responsibility to this. You know, you talked about blaming others. Well, if they would make and if they would do, um, but if I will own what, what I need to do and what I'm responsible for, and then understand what God's responsible for, then it's amazing how simple decisions are. And it's amazing how clearly we can think about mm-hmm. what the consequences may be and what the future may hold for us and all those kind of things. Cause you know, when we were talking about that picture, nobody thought, you know what, in six months, I think this is what I'm going to be doing, sitting on the side of the road, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, but they ended up there through a series of, of um, you know, unwise decisions that got them there. Because um, we talk about this here all the time. Like, every sinful decision is preceded by an unwise decision. Like, it might not be sinful, but it's probably not smart for me to be doing this. And, yeah. well, what about this? But it's all about self-preservation. Well, I have to do this. I have to get along to, to what does this Go say? along to Go get along. Go along to get along, right? So, oh, I don't love this, but I'm going to do this because then it protects me or gives me an opportunity. And before we know it, we're someplace we never thought we'd be. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, you know, in Germany, World War II Germany, 
um, who was a vocal opponent of the Nazis and eventually was, you know, was executed. Um, you know, but at a time when uh, the Catholic Church in Germany was capitulating to the Nazis and mm-hmm. and all of that kind of thing, Bonhoeffer and uh, you know was stood firm. And there's a quote from him, you know, when someone asked him, you know, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but the quote was this, um, that he was talking about the, the prayer movement and the, the, the movement that he was leading. He said, this has to be stronger than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and on the surface, you know, you know, like I said, Bonhoeffer was executed. Uh, it didn't really look like, you know, this was stronger than that. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, yeah. in the course of history, you know, Bonhoeffer's influence has far outstripped and far, you know, and so, and, and so it was stronger. And he was willing to stand even in those moments where it didn't look like that was the case. You know, he was willing to recognize God's sufficiency all the way up to death. And I think when we are willing to do that, that's when we place ourselves in a position to really see God do something incredible. Uh, and so I, I hope that I hope that that's the kind of resolve that I live with. I mean, I've fallen short certainly several times, but but isn't I mean part of me thinks well, I think part of this for sure is our perspective. Like, do I have an eternal perspective, or are my eyes more focused on my very next step, like yeah. what's immediately in front of me? And I think Bonhoeffer is a great example of somebody who had an eternal perspective. Mm-hmm. He understood, hey. Um, the value of my life is very l- small compared to the glory of God, yeah. right? Yeah. And again, these are things we preach all the time, but when it comes time for us to live it out, um, that's why, um, you know, we talked about earlier, like we cater to people who are celebrities in our in our um, communities, right? Like the mayor of the town or whatever. Yeah. We cater to them because we're looking at the short term instead of the long term. Like, hey, this might... This might not be the best thing to do, but it's got an immediate payout, right? Like I get some mm-hmm. sort of gratification for that. The mayor goes to my church, whatever it is, right? And so we make these long-term sacrifices for these short-term returns, and we do this all the time in mm-hmm. just about any yeah. area of our life. Um, but when it comes to our relationship with God and when it comes to the kingdom, I think, man, if we can have an eternal focus, it just makes the immediate decisions um, not easier but simpler, like we can see that more clearly. Yeah, this is uh, this is both terrifying and I think helpful. Um, so th- this is this idea of okay, I am personally responsible for the misery, the societal misery that that is enveloping the nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's terrifying to think about, but that inside of that is also the key to unlocking the problem of demoralization. So this Mm -hmm. is one of Solzhenitsyn's great insights in the Gulag Archipelago. He's in prison and what he decides to do is take an inventory of his own life and mark off all the little decisions that he made that have had contributed to the rise of the Soviet Union and to the rise of Stalin's Russia and all like Mm -hmm. all that, Mm -hmm. all the little sellouts like Todd, like you were talking about, all these selling out points one after another. And he determined that he was personally responsible for the situation that he was now in. And he also said that if everyone in Russia tomorrow decided to stop saying what they knew wasn't true, to stop lying for power interest, that the whole thing would reverse itself, that the whole thing would stabilize. Hmm. And so, you know, we're in this situation where people feel like, okay, there's this great behemoth of a, of a federal government or of a corrupt, uh, cabal of power powerful people who are making all the decisions and we Mm -hmm. just have to live with them but i don't think that's the case when you look back and study how these things turn out the lesson learned is that that's not the case Mm -hmm. like the way you rebuild a society is understanding that that's not the case is understanding that no my decisions my the things i say actually determine the outcome yeah um and like Todd, your point about Bonhoeffer, like you, you may not see it now, but Bonhoeffer's book the, or the book about Bonhoeffer is like required reading for pastors now in their first year. The Eric Metaxas book? Um, I don't know if it was Metaxas, but the book I think is called Radical Integrity. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And he's used as an example of integrity yeah. now. Mm-hmm. And and it's like, what are we? Yeah. And that, that goes to the eternal perspective. Like, what mm-hmm. are we? What exactly are we trying to do? But but that's so I, I think there's a lot of fear with people, um, 
first of all, there's doubt. There's doubt of whether or not what I say or do really um, can change things. But I think that doubt is caused by the fear of what if that's true? Mm-hmm. What if what I'm doing is causing this thing? Um, and there are real ramifications to what I decide to do. But yeah. inside that fear is the that's that's the way out of the demoralization as far as I can tell. It mm-hmm. might be the only way out. Yeah. I don't know. I was not expecting for us to go to Googlog Archipelago today. But <laughs> yeah. Thank you for taking us there, Michael. We let's, were having fun uh, and then you just got real deep on us. <laughs> let's talk about some people selling body parts. Like, wow. <laughs> Record scratch moment. That's okay. Can only go uphill from here. Okay, so speaking of uh, difficult situations, we were talking about being a mouthpiece to the community. Uh-huh. I don't think it's the case that pastors aspire to have to exercise pastoral care over an entire community at one time. Um, and you, we all know the kind of events that have to happen for that to take place. Right. Um, those kinds of things like attacks on schools, terrorism, yeah. stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, it's not, it's definitely not impossible and it may be becoming increasingly likely that a pastor will have to enter that role. Um, have either of you ever had to pastor an entire community at one time? If you haven't, um, like, I don't think that that's a, I think most pastors probably haven't, but if you haven't, how would you go about doing that? How would you advise pastors to go about doing that? Well, let me start with this. Um, I mean, this is the back 40 podcast. Anybody can listen to it, but hopefully pastors in rural churches are are listening to this and benefiting from it. And if you're the pastor of a rural church in a small town, there's an excellent chance you are pastoring your community. Already. And that's that's the benefit of pastoring a, a church in a small town is that your influence um, is much broader than the people who show up on to, to listen to you preach. Um, because you're going to football games and you're in the community and, you know, your kids play sports with other people. And so when crisis comes, a personal crisis comes, they're looking for someone to help and you're able to pastor them. So, um, so that's a little different than what specifically you're talking about, but you're talking about these cultural events that happen that collectively people are looking for someone to lead them or to comfort them or to speak into that. And, um, and, and again, I think, Pastors of rural churches are uniquely positioned to do that. But, you know, since I've been here eight and a half years at the Summit Church, our church is big enough and the town is small enough that that's something we tell our staff all the time. Like, you don't know who your waitress is. You don't know who you're talking to in the community. They might go to our church. So you always have to have your A game, right? You cannot have a bad day. You can't treat somebody like trash because you might be their pastor and you don't even realize it. Um, and we have situations all the time where people will say they go to our church that don't, and they're not lying. They, this is their church, but they don't attend. They watch online or they come to our events or whatever it might be. So there's a level of influence there already. Um, and so what we have to do is just understand when those cultural events happen, how do we steward that and what are we doing to navigate that? And, um, and so like when there was, you know, George Floyd, that was a pretty significant event. And that was something that it would, it would have been hard not to address from the platform that following weekend. Um, and that affects our church, but again, it affects the broader community as well. Um, and so I think there's things we have to step up and have those conversations about and have to say, even if we say, I don't know what the answer is, but it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know how this is going to turn out. We're going to make it through this though. Yeah. Um, that's really, really important that just because I'm the pastor doesn't mean I have to have every answer. Sometimes it's just saying, reminding people, Hey, God's in control, you know, back to the sufficiency thing, you know, God is enough. God sees this. He was not surprised by this. Um, but it's important for pastors to step into that role because a lot of times people are looking for that in, in a community. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you think that like the cooler heads prevail in these situations? Because I, I remember specifically related to the George Floyd incident, um, there was a moment, uh, mm-hmm. a couple days where a lot of people were saying that uh, protesters were being bussed into the community. And I remember coming into your office and saying, hey, did you hear protesters are being bussed into the community? Mm-hmm. And the first thing you said to me was, that's not true. Yeah. Like, you know, because you had, I think you had talked to like yeah. the chief of police or something. <laughs> yeah. And he said, that's actually not true. Yeah. And so 
I, in that moment, I felt like, okay, my head wasn't cool enough because I just took what was being, what mm-hmm. was circulating. And I was like, yeah. uh-oh, that's, that's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> like, what do we do about that? And there were places that were boarding up their businesses. Like mm-hmm. that was actually, people were yeah. really uh, yeah. spun up in a ball over that. Um, so how, w- w- how long do you wait for the other shoe to drop before you speak into something? Do you wait? Do you, are you just like, okay, I need to it seems like it's obvious that it's wise to gather as much information as possible before you make a decision about what you're going to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you feel a tension between having to gather that information and having to like get out there and say something so that it seems like you're you not any, shying away from it? Do you have any thoughts on that, Todd? Um, I don't, you know, and maybe this is just my personality type. Mel might disagree. Uh, I never, I can't say never. I rarely feel obligated to go out and say something really quickly. Um, I want, I want all, I want more information. I want time to process. Um, so I know that my, if I'm going to err, it's going to be that I'm too slow and rather than too fast, and that's not good either. And so I have to recognize that and 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 you know find a, a middle ground. Um, but I, I think that either is is not good if you go out and speak too quickly and you don't have all the information well you know you may have egg on your face if you wait too long then you know the the moment may be passed or there may be something that that happens that you could have um you know been a part of helping to mediate or stop you know and so uh i think you have to find that balance of you know uh having all the information you need and not waiting too long and I don't, I don't know that there's any set moment for that. Well, I got to be careful too, that it's not selfishly motivated. Like, yeah. Hey, I want to, I want to be the first to say something because I want to be associated with this or, you know, or, um, I'm not going to speak out on something because what are my people going to think if I yeah. say something? So if that's my motivation, no matter when the timing is, I'm wrong. Like I've got to, I've got to start with. How do I care for my congregation? Yeah. How do I care for the people in my charge? Um, because again, it would, there was so much criticism um, leveraged toward pastors, uh, especially during all that season, the Black Lives Matter stuff, that pastors were compl- complicit in this. And, you, you know, you're racist if you don't say something. And it's like, well, but after some stuff came out, it was like, oh, well, it seems like some mm-hmm. of this stuff might have been justified. And so. You know, like it was legally justified. Does it make right. it right? No, not necessarily, but it's not as clear cut as it seemed to be initially. Um, and so there was a lot of pressure on pastors to use their platform for things that that seem to be gospel centric, but maybe it's not as clear as that. And so, again, if my motivation was I want to get ahead of this, I don't want to look like a coward, so I'm going to say something or. Uh, you know, I don't want to lose people like, man, that's just the wrong motivation. And uh, I've got to filter it through, like, how can I take care of my people? Well, how can I lead them? Well, how can I care for them? Well, um, and if that's my filter, I'm still going to mess it up at times, but at least I'm messing it up with the right motivation and the right heart. Um, cause there's not a perfect time to have those talks yeah. and to step up and to say, Hey, here's where we're at. And, but I think it's, um, I, th- I think I've got to watch my motivation. Yeah. And I have to think that part of it too is monitoring the health of the people in the congregation saying, okay, these people are way too politically minded. And mm-hmm. so what they need in this moment is a redirection toward the gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. like f- for that particular congregation, although the issue may be um, locally relevant, mm-hmm. um, if you have a congregation that's hyper politicized, it's like, okay, we really like red meat to this audience mm-hmm. is yeah. a bad idea. Um, and so we're going to, we're going to shift, we're going to redirect to the gospel, even though I would be justified in remarking or having like a hot take on this particular event. Yeah. I think in those cases that my approach, at least as a pastor, is to try to help people to see their blind spots, mm-hmm. you know, because um, if if you are, you know, just to take this kind of the to continue on the kind of George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, police brutality kind of thing. If you are a person who tends to be more pro-police, well, you're going to have some blind spots in mm-hmm. regard to those on the other side of the issue. 
if you tend to fall on the other side of the issue. You're going to have some blind spots in regard. And I think that the gospel will address both of those sometimes in the very same way. Yeah. Like if we if we talk <laughs> about the dignity of every person, if we talk about, you know, preferring others above ourselves, if we talk about, you know, the if we really talk about the issues of the gospel and what it means to love our enemy and to love our neighbor, then the gospel will address both of those things at the same time. And we don't have to, you know, go you know, rah-rah on either side of that. Mm -hmm. We just preach the gospel, and it, it takes care of that. The Holy Spirit, you know, he does things, you know, and we, we should trust that. Yeah, well, so, and, well, and you talk about blind spots, but it's even how we filter that, because we've had conversations with people where they say, hey, you need to be talking about this issue. Right. Like, well, we did talk about that issue. No, you didn't. It's like, no, we did. Here's what Paul says. Hey, there's yeah. neither Greek nor Jew, and he, here's how they're like, well, that's fine, but that's not the way they received it because mm -hmm. they've got their blind spot. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that might be part of that. Could be, and this is this is really uh, potentially insidious. Let's say uh, it could that's, be. This is my favorite. We need to have a segment on this podcast. <laughs> potentially potentially insidious. insidious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have music for it. <laughs> it could be that the people um, who are pushing their pastors to talk on a certain thing are not really interested in what the pastor has to say. They're interested in watching their pastor align underneath the personality cult of the particular follower that they're actually following. 100%. And so yeah, they're like, some of that for sure. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a flag thing. It's, uh -huh. it's more of like a, I got to figure out who, who it's he is. Signaling. Yeah. It's like, who, what side of this do you really fall on? And mm -hmm. this is the side that they care about. It's not actually what, the substance of what you're going to say. Yeah. It's just, yeah. how do I categorize you? Mm -hmm. um, and we, I mean, that's something that should always be resisted. And I think that speaks to the idea of like, okay, gospel first, it, it, is the gospel going to address this? Then I'm going to go that road. That way you resist the temptation of abandoning the hill you're supposed to be standing on in order to stand on the hill that the yeah. ill-intentioned uh, person is trying to get you to stand on. So that's, that's, that's pretty interesting. I guess that wasn't as insidious as I thought it was going to be. I didn't know how it would sound. <laughs> uh, okay, so when it, when, it, when we talk about um, monitoring and developing the health of a congregation, a lot of that is evangelism and discipleship. And so I want to know, when it comes to evangelism and discipleship, I, I think that churches tend to be programmatic about this. Mm -hmm. Like the first question is, okay, how do we develop a program that will have these things work? And I don't think programs are bad. But I don't think programs are sufficient if you don't have a model for evangelism and discipleship mm -hmm. in whoever's leading up the program. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about what it's like to be a model of evangelism and what it's like to be a model of discipleship. How do you how do you carry those out? So maybe to, to add a little bit more uh, to, to sharpen the point on this, I had said, Mel, to you once that um, so much of what you teach about leadership is nonverbal and it just comes from people watching you lead. Mm -hmm. And so they just watch how you react to a certain situation or what you choose to do. And they're learning more about that from that than what they're learning from the th it makes me so nervous. It's like, oh, crap, how am I responding? What am I doing? <laughs> um, but, but so I don't know what causes people to yep. do that, but I think that that's a reality. Yep. And so yeah. how do we how do we model that when it comes to things like evangelism and things like discipleship? So church is not a factory. Uh, and so, you know, while systems are important within the context of discipleship, your systems will only be as strong as your relationships with the people. And so... Um, so it has to be relationally based. You have to be facilitating and developing relationships, not only as a, you know me as a pastor with the with the people of the church, but facilitating relationships between other people in the church, so that they might walk together and grow together. Because much of discipleship is about exposing what is hidden. Mm -hmm. And the only time that we are willing to really expose what is hidden is when we feel like we are seen and known and loved. Not just feel like that, but know that we are. Mm -hmm. And so 
So systems are great, and we, we need to have them in place because we, you know, especially once a church gets to a particular size, you're not going to be able to effectively connect with each person without good systems in place, without other people. I mean, I think of Moses in the Old Testament when his father-in-law said, hey, you need some other people to help you with this, right? Mm-hmm. And systems allow those kinds of things to happen. But those systems will never supersede the relationships. And so I think that it has to come from that place first and foremost. So is part of that establishing a track record with someone of them revealing hidden things to you and then you acting in such a way that invalidates their negative false assumptions about how you're going to react? So like, like yeah. they, they think, okay, I, I don't know if I should reveal this thing, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. Maybe they have like a brilliant stroke of faith and they're like, they reveal it. And then they see, oh, he didn't react the way I thought he was going to react. Mm-hmm. So the next, the next revelation is not uh, as difficult to do. And then as you continue to have those moments with that person, you build up trust and yeah. then you're able to really actually disciple them well. Well, this is, this is a, a, a small example, but uh, when my wife and I were early, newly married, we had uh, some friends, um, one of which was a pastor's son uh, who had walked away from faith, and uh, but we developed a relationship with them. We started going out to eat, that kind of thing. Uh, he and I both were raised in, um, you know, a teetotal, like super, like dry, no alcohol at all kind of environment, right? And he knew that about me. I knew that about him. Um, And every time we would go out to eat, he would order a beer every single time, Hmm. right? And it was only later that I found out. He told me later after actually, so he and his wife ended up returning to the church, coming back to Christ. And, uh, and, and he told me, he said, Todd, I intentionally ordered a beer every time I ate out with you just to see how you would react. Yeah. Huh. Right. And so it was the fact that I didn't blink. Right. And I didn't, you know, I, we, we treated them the same. We carried on with relationship. We, we stewarded that place that they were willing then to, to start to talk about more important things, right? Yeah. To really deal with heart issues and eventually develop a relationship where they, you know, came back to Christ. And so I absolutely, I think stewarding those places for people where they feel vulnerable and where they are afraid to share is massive in terms of our ability to, to help walk alongside them as they grow into the image of Christ. So how do you do that without um, condoning whatever it is they're revealing? So I think that the, I think some people have like a natural understanding that, that this process is important, but what they defer to is, okay, uh, all roads lead to God. Like everything, you know, it's all subjective. And um, I can't say that like entire church denominations are getting this wrong. It's bizarre to me. Like, I don't understand how this has happened, but in or in an effort to not condemn the people they've condoned the sin mm-hmm. yeah. and it's like it's so it's such an elementary concept that it's become cliche mm-hmm. yeah and yet we still aren't getting that and i say we in the general sense like that why is there a struggle there like how do you do it on a practical level on a daily level like where is the struggle coming from is it coming from the, the the fact that people don't know how to have those conversations and then it's emanating up through the hierarchy of church leadership until you have a whole denomination that says okay we're going to institute this into our policy so that we don't lose all these people like where is the disconnect because it just seems like such an easy thing to do it's like okay you come to me and you say i have this thing that i'm struggling with i'd be still struggling with it right now okay that's not who you are you're practicing that thing but Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that that you are a that you are that thing right um and so you don't identify with it a you don't identify with it b you certainly don't take pride in that identity all of those steps are are terribly destructive why why can't we uh figure this out i guess mm-hmm. like why why is it why is it floating up through the the levels of church leadership to where it's it's destroying major american denominations well i think some of it is um on the on the micro level it is it's hard to be vulnerable and it's hard to um to give people space to to do that like let's be honest 
most pastors are trying to preach a message on the weekend. Uh, they're trying to manage their family. They're trying to, they've, they've got the normal stuff they're dealing with. And a program, program, program driven discipleship is easier because you can go, Hey, we're going to have this class. I'm going to teach a class and you're going to sit and it's going to be 10 weeks and it's our discipleship. But the kind of personal discipleship that we're talking about, uh, or personal evangelism for that matter, it is intentional and it costs you something. It's going to cost some time. It's going to take an investment. Um, it's probably going to take you being vulnerable as well in order to garner their vulnerability. And so it is, it just costs us something to do that on the, on the micro level that sometimes we don't feel like we've got. Um, and, and so we've got to be intentional about it. It's got to be something that we go, Hey, I want to see this end in this person in order to see that this is what I'm going to have to do. And it's still not even up to us because they might not be in agreement with that. Right. They might not want to see the same end in their life. So it's got to be, I mean, it really does cost us something, um, to, to personally walk somebody through that, but it's rewarding. I mean, I know Todd has done that with people in our church, spent time with them and invested in them and, um, coached them and pastored them and, you know, all those kind of things to develop them. Um, and I have too, um, but I have to, I have to be intentional about it. I have to say, okay, um, I'm getting lunch with this person and, you know, we're, I'm calling them and, you know, making that time and Hey, let's get together. And how are you doing? What's going on in your heart, man? What's like having those conversations. It's much easier just to talk about sports for five minutes before service starts and yeah. go about our business. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, even the big stuff you're talking about denominationally, um, you know, that I think there's some relation there, but in some ways it feels like that is a totally different animal entirely yeah. than, you know. Yeah. And there's a whole lot. I mean, there's, it takes a lot to get to that place in terms of a denomination, uh, and in terms of a culture that I don't know that we have time to unpack. Right. Yeah. Cause by the time, by the time you're at that place denominationally, you have all sorts of other tentacles that are, mm-hmm. that are invested yep. in like power interests, dynamics, all that stuff. Okay. Views so on I, scripture. I mean, yeah. Oh yeah. You yeah. Know. Oh man. Yeah. yeah. So, so I have a, a proposition, um, and a what comes with that is an additional proposition that we're handling that thing wrong. And then I want to know whether or not you think the initial proposition is even uh, even true. And if it is true, how should we handle it? Okay. So the proposition is that the the classroom and the curriculum and the program is partially motivated by a desire, a pastoral desire to be detached from having to actually walk through uh, a person's difficult seasons with them. So for instance, if, if, if you're, if you're part of a curriculum, you're part of a class or a program, and then you reveal these things you're dealing with, and then I have to tell you to stop, or I have to tell you that there's a better way, or I have to tell you that those things are wrong. I can say, oh, I'm not telling you the program's telling you, or I'm, you know, it's, it's the class that's doing it. And then, mm-hmm. so, okay. So I actually think this is, this is the proposition. This is another proposition. I don't know if it's true, but I think that some measure of detachment is probably appropriate in pastoral leadership in that role in the sense is that that if you start to think that you are the one responsible for transforming the person's heart Mm -hmm. you will fail you will you will disappoint yourself you will uh, lead them astray all 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 this Um, and so it really is the case that when dealing with someone in that situation or a situation like that you just be faithful you teach scripture faithfully Mm -hmm. and then that's it and then you take your yep. hands off of it. What do you think about those? Like, is the classroom part motivated by detachment and is some detachment necessary? Okay. Let me, uh, let me start with the second one first. I do think some detachments necessary in that, what you just said, like, Hey, it does not rely. It's not dependent on me. Like I need to be faithful to do what God's asked me to do. But just like somebody's salvation is not dependent on me, their sanctification is not dependent on me either. So um, I'm going to be faithful to do what I'm supposed to do, but I need to clearly understand what, what my limits are. That yeah. I, That is not my responsibility, right? I, I'm planting seeds, and that's what I'm doing. Or I'm watering seeds, and that's what I'm doing, right? Um, God, God brings the increase. So for the first thing, um, I would say that a desire to be detached from the people we're leading – might be um, a secondary motivation, but I just don't believe it's a primary motivation for most pastors. Mm-hmm. I think for most pastors, especially smaller churches, they recognize a need that for for um, for intimacy with God, for 
biblical um, literacy in their church and they go, okay, the, the easiest way for me to get this out is to have a class or to have a group or to have 10 yeah. people sitting in a room and me teaching them. And I, so I think their primary motivation is how can we mass produce this going back to your factory, you know, mm-hmm. like, Hey, we're producing this. So I'm getting this to you. Um, and now we're good. Now you've been through this class and, you know, and so I don't think their motivation is, is wrong. Uh, cause their motivation is I want to develop people in as, um, uh, um, Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Efficiently. Efficient, yeah, an yeah. efficient way as as we possibly can. And one-on-one is not efficient. Uh, but the problem is most of us have not raised up people in our congregation who can do one-on-one, right? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. it's dependent on the pastor. And if, if it takes us six months to walk with somebody, then it's like, well, how many people can I walk with in six months, right? Like, well, this is a slow process. It's way quicker. It's way more efficient to go, hey, I'm going to pile people in a room. We're going to go through some lessons together and there it is. And so that's just off the cuff what I think, but yeah. you might disagree with that. I don't know. No, I think that's true. And I, and I, again, kind of going back to what I was saying earlier, I don't think we get rid of systems, Yeah. you know, yeah. but if I'm teaching a class, um, but I am unwilling to engage with someone who comes up with up to me after class, yeah, and meet with them one on one if necessary, or pray with them, or what if you know if I'm detached from that, well then then there's a disconnect there, right? Then I am defaulting to well we have this class and so that's all you need, yeah. you know. Uh, it, I think it's I think it's a both and kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then I was you know uh, there's a there's a concept in psychology called compassionate detachment, you know, <laughs> where um, where it's possible for us to have compassion and love toward people and still remain detached to a mm-hmm. degree so that, uh, well, so that we don't sink into unhealthy patterns in terms yeah. of how we, you know, like the worst thing I can do as a pastor, I think, is get into a place where I feel like I am personally responsible for the salvation of every person in my congregation. Yeah, yeah. Because then I'm not relying on Jesus anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not relying on the Holy Spirit anymore. I'm relying on my effort, and it will always come up short, and it will always lead to either burnout or compromise in some way or just despair because I can't save everybody. You know, I, I am not anybody's savior. I'm not. And, and when I think that I can be, man, that's a dangerous place to be. So how do you deal with people who maybe at the ground level who would push back and say, oh, so, I mean, like you, you have the, and this people, these people might not understand what it, what it's like to depend on Jesus or depend on the spirit mm-hmm. of God, but they might look at you and say, oh, you have the appearance of someone who just doesn't really care enough to try hard enough to, to, uh, you know, adjudicate these sins or these, these situations that these people are dealing with. You're just, you just don't want to be involved enough, but it's not that like, it's not, oh. it, it, it but it would, to someone who doesn't know what it is like to depend on the Spirit of God, it would look like that because they're not accounting for the third party. Well, in the... and I think that's the responsibility of the, the pastor to as, as good as we possibly can help them understand, you know, hey, I've got limits. There's only so much I can do. I can't solve this problem. Like, I can't save your marriage. I can't help. I can't grow your faith, right? Like, I'm going to do everything I can but we're trusting God in this, you know, like, I think that's healthy, but uh, some of it comes back to sometimes we don't like to say that because we like being people saved, yeah. right? Like yeah. we like people going, oh my gosh, I could not have made it through this without you. Like, that's right. You couldn't have, right? Yeah. Like we kind of <laughs> yeah. like that. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, um, you, you've been a lifesaver. This, this situation, I couldn't have made it through. No, you could have. The Holy Spirit is the one who got you through this. It wasn't me. Um, but we kind of like it. It makes, well, yeah. Well, and the tragedy of that is that we can end up with people who have placed their faith in Pastor Todd or Pastor uh-huh. Mel mm-hmm. rather than in Jesus. Yep. And I would much rather have people, you know, and I, I don't want anyone ever to have to think this or, or to, you know, but I would much rather have someone, if I have to pick, I would much rather have someone think that I wasn't as compassionate toward their situation as I could have been than for them to think that I'm the one who rescued them. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's good. That's yeah. That's that's super smart. 
and the, just the idea that it's even even I would say it's even better to have someone crash and burn temporally and come out on the end of it with an understanding of their need for Jesus than it is for you to prevent them from going mm-hmm. through that mm-hmm. yourself. And then they come out on the other side, like you said, you know, Pastor Todd saved me through all this. Yeah, yeah so, bad theology. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. That's a great place to wrap this up. Todd, Mel, thanks for joining me. And thank you guys for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast. And we will see you in the next episode. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcast.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to Summit Podcasts, and we will see you in the next episode.